Hi, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jukes Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did, and so will I. Thank you for the support, whether you're watching or listening, as always. Much appreciated. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe. Do so at the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm resides. Much appreciated. Tell friends, tell family. All right, hang in there with me. I've got a bit of a cold, but I'm going to try to power through. This episode features an amazing female vocalist whose professional music career includes backing Ike and Tina Turner as an Iket while still just a teenager, fronting one of the best underground funk rock bands of all time in Maxan, and going on to record and perform with a long list of rock pop and R&B A-listers. The woman I am referring to was born as Paulette Parker, but she would become known as Maxan Lewis, one of the finest and busiest singers of the past half century. Her sensational namesake band also included the man who she would marry and adopt his surname, futuristic keyboard player Andre Lewis, who himself would go on to be a Motown recording artist under the name Mandre. The group also included Emery Thomas on drums, who would go on to become Johnny Guitar Watson's band director and was himself recently featured on A Truth and Rhythm. You don't want to miss that one. It's something to see. Maxam released three albums in the first half of the 1970s, an eponymous debut, Mindful, and Bailout for Fun. The band's unique blend of soul, funk, rock, progressive keyboard-driven soundscapes, mix of original material, and reimaginations of cover tunes, all propelled by Maxan's powerful pipes, allowed the group to cultivate a loyal underground and collegiate crowd following. Strong examples of how they made others' killer compositions their own can be heard in Maxan's versions of the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter and Curtis Mayfield's Check Out Your Mind. While similar in configuration to Rufus and Mother's Finest, Maxam was less commercial than the former and not as hard-rocking as the latter, and yet was at least equally compelling. Maxam Lewis's sweet and husky voice and style has been referred to as a cross between Roberta Flack and Aretha Franklin. After splitting up with Andre Lewis and leaving the Maxam band behind, Maxam Lewis went on to sing with a host of stars that included Bonnie Raitt, Sammy Hager, Billy Preston, The Gap Man, Roseanne Cash, Donna Summer, Tower of Power, Smokey Robinson, Rita Coolidge, Simple Minds, Leon and Brenda Russell, Celine Dion, John Bon Jovi, The Doobie Brothers, and many others. In this very in-depth interview, Maxan comes darn close to providing a comprehensive first-person account of the golden era of 1960s to 1980s soul, blues, funk, and rock, with several astounding and poignant personal stories mixed in. While this is a lengthy truth and rhythm with a few technical hiccups, I urge you to set aside the time, even if not all at once, to take it all in because Maxanne Lewis pulls few punches in laying out her incredible life story. It's informative, inspirational, heartbreaking, and still a lot of fun. So with that, let's get mindful with Ms. Maxanne Lewis. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, perhaps the greatest female soul rock singer with which you are least likely to be familiar. We're hoping to change that today. I'm speaking of the criminally unsung and monstrously talented Maxine Lewis, a one-time ICAT who fronted the fabulous early 1970s group Maxan and went on to become one of the busiest in in-demand session and background singers in the business. Maxan, so good to have you. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for making the time. Much appreciated. So here we are. Yeah. So you're coming to us from uh, Los Angeles. Is that right? Yes, I am. I live in Los Angeles. and I've lived here for quite some time. And uh, for a while, I lived in Tokyo, Japan, and I toured and worked there for about 12 years off and on, like really living there and coming back to America, like on vacation only. But uh that was quite an experience and I loved it. Uh, I'd like to uh, start way back and get a little bit on your on your background and uh, how you first got into music. So were you um, a, a prodigy or, or how did you first get into singing and in, into music? 
I wouldn't say I was a prodigy. Uh, I, I'm not even close. The people that I consider to be prodigies are people who, you know, just blow your mind. And I never felt like I was mind blowing or anything, but I studied music. I'm from Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I uh, always wanted to play the piano, always. I don't know where that came from. Um, my mom didn't play piano, my dad didn't play piano, but I, I think I saw something on TV and I was like, oh, I wanna do that, you know? And, and then if we went anywhere like to church or someone's home and they had a piano, I was just fascinated by that. So my mom realized that I was drawing piano keyboards and acting like I was playing them. And she goes, I'm gonna put her in music school and see how she does with it. And I got, they sent me to a music conservatory when I was four years old and I never looked back. I started playing the piano. And, and then I, as soon as I learned how to operate the piano, I could start to listen to songs on the radio and start to figure out what they were, how they were, how they did it, how they made them and play the song just from my ear. I just was, it was just something I wanted to do, you know, so that, that's where it started. I wasn't a professional, but that's what I, that's, that my love affair with music began around three or four years old. And I had my own radio. My mom gave me my own radio so I could lay in my little bed and listen to the radio before I went to sleep. <laughs> uh, who are some of your uh, early favorites in terms of both listening to and also inspiring you, you know, with music? Well, my parents love music and they played music around our house, like, you know, especially on the weekends, you know, because they were hardworking people, both of them. Um, they ran um, their own catering business. And so they were always busy. And it was four kids. I had a brother and two sisters. And um, so our parents were busy, hardworking people. But on the weekends, that was our our big time to, to hang out and go to church and um uh, listen, my mom would make great food and we'd have great family meals and they would play people like my mother loved Mahalia Jackson. Um, the, um, what was the group um, out of, I think they were from Detroit. She liked a lot of gospel music. My aunt, but my dad also loved jazz. So they both loved jazz and blues. So we had, I heard Ray Charles and Ruth Brown and and uh, Milburn Stone and uh, I mean, just a ton of people, Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn and Miles Davis and you name it. It was, the, they had a, a huge wax record collection that my dad didn't want us to mess around with because records were delicate. You know, you didn't want to put your fingerprints all over them and you didn't want to scratch them. You had to be careful how you played them, that kind of thing. So when they were gone, we would sneak and carefully play the record player <laughs> because my dad would play music for us. He would put it on, what do you want to hear? Because he didn't want us to scratch the records. But when we were like, as soon as they were gone, we were like sneak in and play music and play it very delicately and don't handle it and you know, that kind of thing. Cause it was really, he would wipe the records down and, and put them on and, cause you didn't want to have lint on the needle. Oh, it's crazy. But he, but they love music. So I heard, you know, the caravans would be booming through our house. The mighty clouds of joy, uh, Otis Redding, you know, Ella, um, um, just, just incredible artists. All the ones that I really like. Al Green, as time went on, I love Al Green. Otis Redding, one of my all-time favorites. Um, Ella Fitzgerald, Etta James. Um, and then, then as when, when I became, got into, I started seeing, I, well, I didn't think I was gonna be a singer, but I just loved Nancy Wilson, whom we just lost. Um, that was a devastating blow because my, my, I just saw my sister over the holidays. She lived, I have my sister lives in Santa Barbara and she mentioned like how, she used to come, she was young, my younger sister, and how in my room when I had my own record player and I had the albums that I loved, I had a whole collection of Nancy Wilson. She said, you had all those Nancy Wilson records. I said, yeah, she was my favorite. 
I'd like, you know, because as you grow up, you have different favorites that you become acquainted with. And then you, but Nancy Wilson was really a very influential singer to me. And then when I was living in Japan, I got to meet her in person. She played at the Blue Note for a week. And we, and um, the place I was singing, the guy said, oh, if you want to go over there and see Nancy Wilson, I'll make sure you can go every night. So I got to see Nancy Wilson every night for a week. And I actually knew some of the people that were playing with her. So I actually got to eat dinner with her at the Blue Note and sit there with her. It was like, this is amazing. She was wonderful. She was so down to earth and so uh, just talking to me about being an artist and and sticking to your guns as a female in this business and, and how you have to stand your ground. And when you have have trust your ideas and and trust yourself and your taste in music, and it's just as vi viable as anybody else's. Don't think because men dominate this business that they know everything because they don't, you know, and that our, our opinions and about our music and the things we want to do are valid and you should speak up for yourself and try things. And even if it doesn't work, at least you tried it. And then you know what you, how you want to adjust and what you want to do. So she really gave me a lot of encouragement. And I have to say also that I met Aretha Franklin when I was 18 years old and uh, she was a friend and she encouraged me from that time on. And she actually used to come here when she lived in California and I was playing at a place called the Flying Jib. Uh, she lived right up the street and I didn't realize that she would walk down there while she was out doing her power walk when she lived here and the evening on the nights that we played, she would come and slip in and sit in the back and watch me sing. And I didn't, and then one day I found out she was there and I was like, oh, she says, I've been coming here every Tuesday night to see you. And I didn't realize that. So she was really kind to me as well. So I lost two really important influential, you know, queens of singing uh, this year, devastation. But they were wonderful people and I actually got to meet both of them. And I love them both. Well, but how many Nancy Wilson? Say it again. About how many years ago was the Nancy Wilson encounter? When I lived in Japan, about maybe 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. At least that long ago. Yeah. It's something else, uh, Maxine, hearing you just go through all those, you know, favorites and influences, and you just realize. Man, just every one of them, legend, icon, legend, legend, you know, just unbelievable list of, of artists. And I just don't think we quite have that same level today, but that's just No, me. we don't. We don't. And, uh, you know, and I learned stuff from them. Those, for the most part, they were all really kind people that, you know, everybody thinks when people are in the industry, they're have all these weird you know, quirks and idiosyncrasies about them. But basically underneath it all, they're people. And I, I'm so glad I got to know that about people that I met, that I've met. Tina Turner, uh, who was like, one, that was my first gig, my real big gig, was being on the road with, with Ike and Tina Turner. And they were just proud. I learned so much being on that tour because um, I, it was like going to the university of how to conduct yourself at that time. This is before all the craziness, you know, that it ensued with Ike and his life and then breaking up. I was in the group of Ike right before the big breakup and the book and all that, none of that had come out. Hello? So what was your first uh, professional or semi-professional gigs before you got with uh, Ike and Tina? Well, in Tulsa, I, um, I had been away at college and then I came back just on a break and somebody asked me if I wanted to play with this guy um, at a club called Casa Delgado in Tulsa. 
that somebody said was owned by a guy who was in witness protection, which is like a running joke. But anyway, he was from New York and he had just landed in town and he was, he looked like somebody from the Sopranos. He really did. And they said, he's in witness protection and he's got this club. I said, well, how do you know he's in witness protection? When you meet him, you'll know he's in witness protection. And he was, he was very New Jersey, which was odd for Oklahoma. To, to begin with, but the club was really nice and his name was Vic and he was really a nice guy and he treated me nice. And he said, yeah, you, you and Carl Day, the singer, Carl Day, who is a white guy with blonde hair who wanted to be James Brown. Okay, that's the best way I can describe it. But actually he was quite talented and he used to dress like James Brown, but he had blonde hair and his hair, he had his hair do, done like James Brown's. <laughs> but it was blind and he was this white guy, but he could really dance and do all of James Brown's dancing and flying splits and all that stuff. And I played keyboards and sang and said, so he, we were billed as night and day for a couple of months. Okay. That's what, about maybe three or four months we did, we did that night and day thing. So it was, it was really fun. So it was crazy, but we did all kinds of stuff, Al Green and Otis Redding and James Brown and, you know, a lot of funk kind of music from that from that time. Yeah. Were you comfortable on stage immediately or did you have to work at it? Actually, I was like my high school was like we had a lot of programs at high school in my high school. First, let me say that at that time in my life and at that era in America, Oklahoma was extremely segregated. Very red bloody red, as they say, and really super redneck and super. And when I was a little kid growing up, we actually had color and white only signs mm. everywhere for everything. Don't stand and wait here for the bus. Only white only can stand and wait here for the bus. If you're colored and you're getting, which was crazy, if you're black, if you're getting on the bus, you had to stand further down from the bus stop. You couldn't even stand on the same sidewalk. So it was when I was a small child, that was what it was. And it was it was like that everywhere. The colored line at the post office, the white line at the post office, you know, everything. Drinking fountains, bathrooms. Uh, if you were graduating from or going for your first communion, you couldn't even wear, couldn't even try on a white dress in a store. They had all the white dresses, all the white shirts, everything in plastic, covered up, sealed. And if you wanted to buy it, if you were black, you had to hold it up to your body and say, okay, maybe that's gonna fit. But you couldn't try it on if you're black. They acted like you were chocolate and you were gonna melt on it, you know, or something. <laughs> it was ridiculous. But that, I mean, but that's what it was, you know. And um, so when, by the time I got to be a teenager, the whole integration, Martin Luther King, all of that, Black Panthers, all that was happening and going crazy and coming about. And Oklahoma was one of the last states to integrate. And when they did, it was really violent and crazy. And we demonstrated and they turned fire hoses on us. And we were just teen, we were just kids. But, but we did that, we fought that, I fought that fight. And I have to say at this junction, I am so uh, disappointed right now in America because I already did this, I already fought this fight <laughs> early on in my life. 50 years and ago. I, and, I, and I felt like, okay, this is what we have to do. We have to fight for this. I mean, so we fought for it. And, and then we, we did all that to have it be at this time in my life that now they want to, they need a new fight, a new burn, a new violent quotient. And I just, I, I don't want, I'm tired of it. I don't want to fight anymore. I think I've earned the right to live in peace and that I should be able to do everything that is afforded to me as a citizen of America without somebody calling the police because you're, I'm black while doing it. Like I'm black while doing my laundry or I'm black while driving or I'm black while talking on the phone. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And I just, I don't want to go on a whole soapbox about that, but for just as 
through my eyes and having lived in other countries where none of this existed. I mean, you can even just go to Canada and it's better. It's so much nicer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't, I don't want to be somewhere where you've got to worry about that sort of stuff anymore. Cause I've had an experience of what it feels like to not have to live with that. And I felt like I didn't, I'm not like going like, Oh, I don't want to fight. I don't want to do this. I don't want to already did it. So why are we going backwards? And that's, you know, that's my rhetorical question. Why are we going backwards? It's so ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. So most Americans fortunately agree with you, but a lot of ones that are in power right now have their own agendas, but yeah, we don't want to get, get way sidetracked on that. Yeah. I don't want to do that, but I would (laughs) say my, my, my mom would say the squeaky wheels get the oil. So they're making a lot of noise. So, so, but you felt comfortable on stage because of all you had been through. Is that what you're kind of? Yeah. Well, uh, because I had, when you're, doing activism, which I didn't know that's what it was called. It wasn't, I didn't have that word. But when you do, when you become activist, you have to speak in public. You have to speak out. You have to say what you want to say. Make your, make your thoughts known and encourage people uh, because it was scary. So, but when you're, when you're a kid, you think you're going to live forever. (laughs) <laughs> you're immortal, you know, that, that that kind of thing. The kids are not, you're fearless. And you just go, yeah, this, should, this is the right thing to do, so let's do it because it's the right thing to do, you know. So I wasn't afraid to say that. And my parents were, were courageous people. My grandfather was courageous, my grandmothers, all that. So it was just part of my family culture, too, to speak out against things. So I wasn't afraid to talk and say things and take the mic and do it. So when, but I never ever thought I'd be a professional singer. I was more of a, a pianist. And in, in elementary school, I formed a group, a singing group. We called it the Continentals. And I, I picked the singers that I wanted to be in the group called the Continentals. And I wanted to play all the music and do all the arrangements, but I picked these four girls to be the singers because I liked their voices and they were actually in the seventh grade and I was in the fifth grade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was, and then we started winning talent shows. And that was like, it was so funny because everybody was like, that little girl is telling you big girls what to do. <laughs> that kind of thing. Cause they were big, they were the big girls and I was still a little kid in elementary school. But I knew what with my glasses on and go, okay, this is how it's got to be. And I always heard, I like the popular music like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and all the Motown stuff. I love that music. But I always could hear it done in my own way of doing things. Like I like the song, but I thought we could twist it up and make it do something different. And now they call that mashups but back then people thought it was the most bizarre thing how those two songs could go together or you could blend these two songs together because i listened to more than just the popular song i could hear what what i call hearing the song inside the song and i hear and it's always been that way i guess listening to the radio when i was just a really tiny kid i i would hear it and then I would say, oh, I would hear a part of that song that sounded like a part of another song. I could hear that because I listened intently. And it was like, I was totally engrossed with that. So I've always had my own take on the music. I like stuff that other artists do, but then I'll hear how it could be done a different way. You could add another dimension to it. And that's always been part and parcel of who I am and what I do as an artist. So it was um, Ike or Tina came and, and saw you perform and how did nope. that get No, it didn't happen like that. I, my uncle took me and my best friend to uh, Ike and Tina Turner show in Tulsa. And I, we just saw the show and then I was sitting there looking. I mean, at that time, I think I was 16. And my friend Linda, my best friend Linda, and my uncle took us and 
And I had, I was watching them when they came on the stage and I was looking at that. And all of a sudden, I, I, this is, I swear, this is the weirdest thing. I got this feeling that just came over me like a tingle. And I looked at Linda and she goes, what? She thought something was wrong. She goes, what? I said, I'm going to do that. And she goes like, yeah, in your dreams. Because I was 16, still going to school, high school. And so they played the show and they left and went on their way. And then a couple of years go by and then I'm doing that gig. I did the gig with Carl Day that I mentioned with Night and Day at the Casa Delgado. And then one day on a Saturday morning, I get a telephone call and it was early in the morning and it was Ike Turner. I had never met them. And I thought it was some of my friends playing on the phone because I was always talking about like, one of these days I'm gonna do something like, like work with Tina Turner. I was just dreaming about it. I wanna say too here that my best friends and the people that I hung around with a lot were the guys who ended up being the Gap Band. Yeah, you know who that is? Cause we all grew up in the same neighborhood. We would do talent shows on people's porches with Christmas lights for our stage lights in the summertime. And we would sing to the records. <laughs> and we would, and we would, and one day we made a pact. We all put our hands in the center like a team and said, when we grow up, we're gonna make records. We're gonna go to Hollywood and we're gonna be stars. Huh? And we did this. <laughs> But we were kids. Of course, we, you know, you don't think maybe there's something in that, that your spirit is so strong and the collection of people together, it actually all happened. And one day after we were out here, I didn't come here with them. They didn't come here with me, but they eventually made their way here through Leon Russell and other people. Leon Russell was a friend of my mom's that we one day when we were recording at, at here at, in LA, cause I sang on their music, on their records, they, we all looked at each other and said, remember that day we were like in front of Ronnie's house and we said, we were gonna, we all got like, whoa, like Twilight Zone or something. And we realized that it, this is actually happening. We're doing this, you know? So it was, it was kind of like, maybe it was in the stars or maybe we have we were so strong-willed and determined to do it, and we all had this collective dream that it, it made it happen. I don't know. Plus a lot of talent, too. And lots of talent. And Oklahoma still has a lot of talent there. And uh, we were lucky because the club owners, because the Gap Band used to play in different configurations, Charlie Wilson, all of them. Um, my brother was in the Gap Band. We... we uh, the, the club owners didn't want you to just do top 40 like clubs do in a lot of places. They want you to have original songs. Do you have anything original? Not that you had to have a recording, but just do something that was originally your sound, your music. They want you to do something special that would draw the crowd. And because the, the audiences in Tulsa are pretty talented themselves. There are a lot of people who don't want to be in entertainment, but they could sing and play you under the table. They just like the music. So there's a lot of that there. So Ike, you get on the phone and, and you realize this really is Ike. And, yeah, after uh, I hung up the phone in his face once, I go, okay, who is this? And I named off about five different people's names that could be playing on the phone. So it's too early to be playing on the phone, guys. Come on, click. And I hang up the phone because I was really sleepy. I had sang the night before. And then the phone rings again. And Ike says, please don't hang up this phone. This is Ike Turner. I'm calling you from Kansas. And we're going to be there. And we put out a, a call for ICATS. And we wanted to know if somebody recommended you because they said, where are you going next? We said Tulsa. And they said, there's a girl there that you might, that could probably be an ICAT and, and you should get in touch with her. So they call the musicians union and they give Ike my phone number hmm. and the rest is history. They played there. I went there. 
they gave me an interview at the hotel. When they checked into the hotel, I went to meet them at the hotel before their show. And then I went to the show that night and they hired me. And I went back home and told my parents I was going to go do this. And my mom said, not until they come and talk to your dad. So after their show, they packed up their whole show in the great big giant tour bus in the middle of the night, and they pulled up in front of my house. And all my neighbors <laughs> were coming outside because this was big giant tour bus that had Ike and Tina Turner all over it and all this, and the review, the Ike and Tina Turner review. And Ike comes in, in our house and um, goes into my dad's study with him, my dad's office, and they sit in there and talk for 45 minutes. I don't know what they said to each other. When they came out, I, my dad goes, okay, you can go. You can do it. And that <laughs> what, was that. What so, year was that? Oh, geez, 1968, something wow. like that. This is um, real small, but there's uh, a picture. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's and that was that was the group that's uh, Ann Thomas going from Ann Thomas, then me, Pat Padrill and Jean Brown. That was, wow. that, was that that set of, of Icats. And, and how long did you spend with them? A couple of years, you know, off and on. Well, a couple of years because we were the first year I was joined them. We did three hundred and forty five one nighters. In 365 days, we did 341 night one-nighters. Wow. And that was like, I call that going to the university of how to be on the road. <laughs> I graduated from that university, but, and we went to Europe. We went all over Europe. That I mean, that tour included everything. And I had never been anywhere. I was just a girl in Tulsa. So I ended up being uh this girl going everywhere and I'm such a history buff and geography and all this. And I, everywhere I went, they thought I was crazy because I would get up early in the morning and go see the changing of the guards. If I was in England, I was going to go do that. If I was in Scandinavia, I wanted to go see the Vasa. I wanted to go see everything that I had ever read about in, in my encyclopedias. If I read about it and I ended up being there, I was going to go see that. So I went everywhere, Notre Dame, I went everywhere. And they, they were like, where are you going? I'm going to the Louvre, I gotta do it. And I would go and then I would call my mom on the phone, call my mom and dad on the phone from wherever I was, putting coins in the phone, you know, that kind of thing. I did it. Wow. They tell them, I'm over here and I'm doing this. I took a bunch of pictures and a lot of stuff and just, but I just went everywhere I went, I got to, I did, I wanted to go see what it was famous for. Well, you know, and, and that was such an energetic kind of show, too, that I can see that did. I mean, that must have whipped your butt. Well, it, I was already physically fit and um, relatively athletic. So I and I could dance really well. So she realized that I could sing and play piano and do all that. Like, a, OK, then there was my I got assigned to teach parts. You know, the the harmonies. And and really keep the parts tight for everything. So that became like my job. And, and I paid me a little bit extra money for that. And it was really cool. And it was like, wow, I was making great money to be so young. And and uh, I have to say, Ike was like their, their business was very on point. There was no we never had to argue about money. We didn't have to pay for our own hotel rooms, nothing like that. We were accommodated properly. And I taught us how to read contracts. When you're going to do a gig, what does a rider mean? What does it mean? What's supposed to be there? And he said, you know, this is your show too. So when you walk into the venue, you should know what things are supposed to be there because it's for you. If I say this, we should have this kind of food and we should have some refreshments and this kind of thing. I want it to be there. It's not for me. It's for you. So you should know what's supposed to be there. So he ran that show really like a fine oiled, well oiled machine. And he really took care of the people that worked for him and all the bad rumors about, oh, he slept with all the Ikets. That's not true. He didn't sleep with everybody. He had girlfriends, but not all the Ikets were his girlfriends, mm -hmm. you know, and he would, he really wanted, you couldn't go anywhere by yourself unescorted 
because we didn't realize that we were the it girls of that time. Like now, the it girls are people like Cardi B and uh, Beyonce and, you know, that group of people. But during that era, we were the it girls and the I gets. And it was like, wow, if we went anywhere, we uh, we were also had to be well-groomed at all times. I mean, being on that show is like being on a, a, a national team, you know, like the a NBA and, and the, uh, how they have those guys have to wear the suits and all that. We had to be really well-dressed, our nails manicured, our hair done, makeup done. Whenever we went out, we couldn't, even if we weren't working, we had to look a certain way. So that gave us that, that, um, that cult of personality, as they say, is you know, the eye cats, ooh, you know, that kind of thing. Did you also get to do some TV appearances? Yeah, we did a lot of television in, in Europe, especially in the UK, in Germany, France, and Scandinavia. We did a lot of television. We did some television here. Um, like Ed Sullivan? Yeah, Ed, Ed, Ed Sullivan show. I remember doing that. And it was, we did another show, some other shows like in Philadelphia and, you know, some local shows, that kind of thing too. It was, we did a lot of everything. Wow. Incredible. And I got to go to every state in the union. <laughs> I got to visit every state. Wow. Before um, we got to, got to move on, keep it moving. But before I do, uh, can you point to anything that was the single most unforgettable sort of moment from that incredible time on the road with Tina and Ike? Oh, well, we had a lot of great experiences. I mean, we did a command performance at Royal Albert Hall. That was pretty cool. And then afterwards, they invited us for dinner. And not the queen, she wasn't there, but all the rest of them, uh, the the royal, some of the royal family was there to have dinner with us. And I met uh, Michael Caine there. He was part of the party or something. And we were at a place called Annabelle's. And it was all this incredible service with, you know, 15 pieces of silverware and cutlery. And it was really done really well. It was really as, as as my sister would say, foo foo. It was really foo foo. It was really cool, but but it was. Uh, it, it, I guess it was casual for them, but it was really foo foo for us. You know, it was great though. Wow, <laughs> that was a moment, and um, just meeting, you know, some of the people like Mick Jagger and some of those people because they had many many fans who were very famous people. You know, they loved Tina. She was, you know, uh, uh, just a, uh, she was a, a bomb, you know, go like somebody, a firecracker, you know, an M80. She was like an M80 on stage. And so I learned a lot from her just about moving and being on stage and being comfortable in your body. And, uh, and that everything, when you're on stage, everything is, is, is entertaining not just your voice if you're singing, it's not just about just singing, it's your hands, it's your face, it's your eyebrows, it's your eyelashes, it's your clothes, it's your feet, it's your knees, it's everything. So everything is like an angle. Think about people looking up at you like this from an angle, you have to really make it a picture. People are taking pictures of you, so you don't wanna be slumped down and crunching your core, everything's gotta be pulled up, that kind of thing. So I learned a lot you know, doing that show. I mean, I really, I really say it was a university of how to be on the road and really be healthy and take care of yourself because it was no drugs. People weren't alcoholing it up. I mean, we worked too hard. You didn't have time for any of that. You All you want to do is like sleep and eat a decent meal. And, you know, like, and when I say decent, it wasn't that decent food wasn't available, but to, 24-hour restaurants were not as proliferated as they are now. There weren't, there weren't uh, a lot of fast food places. And so when you got to go to a place like Atlanta, Georgia, for instance, or, or New Orleans or somewhere where there's tons of restaurants with great, great food, you would be like in heaven. <laughs> that would be heaven. Because the rest of the time, if you were good, 
to, to be able to go in a place and order a salad and get a, be able to take a salad to go or something. It wasn't as handy as it is now to do, you know, so it was different. Did, did you ever break one of those uh, high heels on stage? No, though the shoes that we wore were uh, were built for dancing. All of that stuff looks like it's like clothes you bought off the rack, but they weren't. Everything, even some of the skirts had, if they, they so the, the way the skirts swayed, they had like a little weight in the in the hem. So everybody's skirts and hair swayed the same way at the same time. Everything was choreographed, and so the shoes, even that Tina's wearing, that she's dancing around, she's never broke a heel on, on, um, on, um, on, on, um, on stage because. That shank that's built into that shoe is steel. You can stomp on those girls all day and all night. They're not going to break. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the thing. I mean, I'm sure that Beyonce, because she's wearing those high heel boots and shoes, that those shoes that she's wearing are, are definitely built. You know, and Prince used to wear shoes that were built because all the stuff he was doing, you can't do that in regular shoes that you just walk into a shoe store and buy. They, yeah, yeah. they look like regular shoes, but they're not. It looks more dangerous than it is. Yeah, it looks like more precarious. Oh, they're on those heels jumping around, but your foot was very solidly supported, you know. So why did your uh, tenure with them come to an end? Why? Yeah. Because they were breaking up. Um, That's the reason why. And, and uh they were kind of they they kept us on payroll for maybe i mean i kept us kept paying us for about six months and we weren't and we were staying here in la and then we would do a couple of gigs and then then they were dividing things up they didn't know how it was going to happen what was going to happen they had this house and then i had the studio and and nobody knew what was going to happen you know the, it wasn't like uh, we're going to break up it's over. Da da da. It didn't happen like that. It, like it, it, they they uh, portrayed it in the movie, like it was a big blow up, a big fight, and she ran, and that was it. no. It, it it didn't really actually happen like that. They were breaking up, but and they had some fights, but it wasn't just that one big boom and over. And it was a process of breaking up. They had been together a long time, and they owned this show together, which was their livelihood. So they didn't just, you know, slam it shut. They had, and they had all these people that were there, young people that they they felt responsible to. And they didn't just like dump us and like, okay, get out, we're over and done. They didn't do it like that, you know? So we were here, still here in LA and uh, we, the Igets actually got to do some other gigs. We went up to Oakland and played some shows up there just singing on our own. and doing stuff and coming back and then seeing what they were going to do. And Tina still lived at the house. And, you know, it was, it was like one of those, we didn't know what's going to happen. So eventually it all did dissolve. And I actually got a call to go do a, a tour with Bobby Blue Bland. And we did a blues tour, a blues festival tour. And then I met all of these people that were stars in the blues field. Like John Lee Hooker, all of those people were at Coco Taylor. You know, it's pretty amazing. Little Johnny Taylor, and I got to meet those people. So it was like really interesting. I was really the baby on that tour because they were all like, you know, real adults, B.B. King and, you know, those kind of people. So, wow. but I got to meet them. It was great. And then I did, after that, I got to, I went, I did a tour with, with uh, Leon and Mary Russell we did the tour and album, and then we did the Willie Nelson picnic, which that doesn't, he doesn't have that anymore. But for about five years, he had something called the Willie Nelson picnic. And I played four of those out there in San Antonio with Ike, with, uh, not with Ike, but with uh, Leon Russell, Leon and Mary. We worked off and on. Leon, Leon Russell's tour we worked off and on. Were the, Wilson, were the Wilson brothers still with Leon at that point? No, no, no. When that started happening, the Wilson brothers weren't the band anymore. Actually, Roger Lynn of the Lynn Machine was a guitar player, and he, he hadn't done the Lynn Machine yet. Hmm. And um, 
and he had a different group, Greg Thomas on drums and uh, Marty, uh, Marty Grab on, on horns and keyboards and stuff. It was, it was a different band, but we had, we did Saturday Night Live and met John Belushi and Chevy Chase and Lorraine Newman and Gilda Radner and, you know, that kind of thing. It was really fun. So, you know. You must have been a uh, fast study, you know, to be able to, and still to this day, to be able to play with so many different artists and so many different styles and learn their repertoires and all of that. Yeah, I did. I was, I, um, I, 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 I studied, uh, well, I, I can just about learn a song in a minute. That sounds crazy, but especially for recording, you need to do that. You need to be really like have a great memory and song songs are written great songs um have a pattern if you learn the first verse and learn the pattern in the chorus then that's the song <laughs> that's basically it but then the words change but the but the pattern of the music is the same you know like take a simple song like imagine john lennon you know it does, it just stays, it's very simple. The words are profound and prolific, but the music, da da da, imagine there's no heaven, you know, and every everything starts like that. So you know that, you don't have to worry about what the notes are gonna be, then you just learn the story. And you and once you get the story, that's, that's the song. So, what were the steps to, um, you know, getting with what would become Max Ann? Um, Well, I was working with Bobby Bland at the time and um, Ernie Fields Jr. was the MD. Now, Ernie Fields lives here in California as well now, but he's from Tulsa as well. And he was the MD for Bobby Blue Bland. And he had, he said, some friends of mine are coming from this show that they're working with this guy who is getting some big stuff going on and, and uh, they're going to come to the show. They want to see, you know, see the show. And I didn't, I said, Oh, okay. I didn't know who it was going to be. We were in Chicago and then Andre Lewis, and Marlo Henderson came to that show, but so did Donnie Hathaway. And we played at this place called the High Chaparral in, in, uh, in, in Chicago, Illinois. And I opened the show for Bobby Bland, which is one reason why I like doing the show, because I got to have, he had an incredible, like small band orchestra with horns and everything. So I could go out there and do just about any song I wanted to do. And I could, he had a great orchestrator named Joel Scott. And Joe Scott was a really, I want to say he was one of, that was another person I learned a lot from. He was a cranky older man, but he was an excellent musician and an excellent orchestrator. And really, he was like a professor. And he 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 said you he would say things like you're only as good as you can tune, kid, you know you're only as good as you can tune. If you if you're out of if you're out of meter, and you're out of key, then you're no good. <laughs> so you're learning about orchest orchestration, and being at the right place at the right time musically when there's a lot going on in the orchestra, horn parts and everything, then. It was a great, that was part of an, an, an continuing, what I call my continuing education, uh, learning that, being out with him. Because Bobby Bland was a blues singer, but he was more of like a Rolls Royce blues singer. He wasn't like a Delta blues or what they call gut bucket blues. He was more sophisticated. If you listen to his albums now, he's passed away as well. But if you listen to his the music, the orchestrations, the arrangements are very sophisticated from other blues, blues recording. So it was a, a different, uh, very uh, like really high end. And most blues, most male vocalists at that time revered Bobby Bland. 
they would all come out. Even the even the temptations would come out to see him. Dennis and all and, and all, all those guys, they wanted to come see Bobby Bland. It was like because he had this big, what I call a voice like an organ. It was like it was it was it was really resonant but smooth but he had skills he could really sing really really well but he was very relaxed and very unpretentious so they all loved him they love all those guys would come to see him they revered him so i felt myself lucky to be in the company of these gentlemen who knew all this stuff and could tell me stuff and and they were very and even and his band was even they weren't like young guys they were mature men you know they're married men with kids and family and wives stuff but they knew what they were doing and they conducted themselves as so they really treated me really kind because i they felt like i was i was this kid who was out there with them, you know, and they took, they took really great care of me and looked out for me, but I also learned a lot from them, you know, musically. Wow. So when did you start doing something or how did the conversation progress? With okay. So after the show, um, they, Donnie Hathaway came to me after, and as soon as I walked off stage, Donnie Hathaway was standing there and he said, I'm Donnie Hathaway. Of course, I already knew he was, but I didn't want to like go into being like giddy, like, ah! you know, like in screaming. But and he gave me his, his business card. He was working for a company. He said, I'm interested to produce you. And I was like, what? You know, I couldn't believe it because I loved Donnie Hathaway's music. And for him to come and ask me that, I was, and I stood, he said, so I've got to go to New York. And when I come back from New York, where can I reach you? Well, there were no cell phones. I said, the only phone number I have that's always there is my mom's phone number, my mom and dad's phone number in Oklahoma. But if you call, I talk to them almost every day. So if you call there and leave a message, I will definitely get it. And I gave him my mom and dad's phone number in Tulsa. And of course, faithfully, we know he went to New York and he died. He fell out of a window out of a hotel. I don't know what happened, whether he jumped or was pushed. I have no idea, but that's what happened. But at that same, while I'm talking to him, he had, I'll tell you what the way he was dressed. He had on a three-piece suit and a big, big oversized apple cap. That was like this stylish thing. He gave me his card and then he left and said, I really, really enjoyed what you, I love what you're doing. You know, I know, I know we're going to have a good, we got to, we can do a good, great collaboration. Then he left. So then these guys came and Ernie said, oh, these are my friends that came. They are playing with a guy named Buddy Miles. And they have, I said, oh, wait a minute. I heard this song on the radio because it was so different. Be on my side. I'll be on your side, baby. That's, um, and I was like, oh, wow, you guys work with Buddy Miles? They said, yeah. We said, but um, so then they said, so we want to, we, we're looking to start our own group. And you you want to go with us? You want to work with us? Now I'm like, I just I just talked to Donnie Hathaway. And now you guys were, said, well, you can go with the guy. And they and Andre goes, well, you can go with the guy in the three-piece suit and the apple hat, or you can go with us and we're going to outer space. <laughs> your choice. And I said, outer space sounds really interesting. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. And, and they said, okay, so we're based out of, at that time they were based in Boston and you have to come to Boston and you're going to sit and you're going to write some songs. I said, well, I, I can't just drop everything I'm doing right now. I'm actually, this is a job that I'm on. I'm on a tour. So I've got about three more weeks to do this. And then we're going to be on hiatus and we'll figure out from there whether or not I'm going to continue. But I got three more weeks to do this. I said, okay, well, when you get ready, um, that's what Andre said. Andre and Marlo said, you can come to Boston. I was like, uh, okay, what am I going to do? So I'm thinking to myself, if I go to Boston, what am I going to do for money? Because I'm working. This is like, I'm just going to be sitting around in Boston doing what? Am I going to be like, I don't know. I didn't know what to expect, you know, that kind of thing. So 
But then from that day forward, over the next three weeks, every time I would walk on the stage, Andre would be sitting in the audience. I don't care what city we were in. It could be Texas, Dallas, Houston, wherever. It would be, he would, I would just walk out on stage and start to sing. And I would look down at the audience and he would go. <laughs> <laughs> he was following us around the country. It was so weird. Atlanta, the same thing. We played in Oklahoma. And when we played in Oklahoma, I had given him my mother's number as well. And when, as soon as I got there, we were going to play there in Tulsa. My mom said, some guy has been calling here. He says his name is Andre Lewis. And he's here and he wants to, he wants to meet us. And I said, meet you? Why? He says, you're gonna go, you're gonna be going to Boston. <laughs> and so he was like actually trying to court me. I was like, are you crazy? You can't, you just can't call my mom up and say these things. And that they, they get upset. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know? But he was actually really, really nice. And he promised me, don't worry, you you can't, you don't have to worry about money, you don't have to worry about anything. You get there, you're gonna see, it's gonna be great. Cause we're doing rock and roll, you don't understand. And he said, you've been on the chitlin circuit. He said, I played on the chitlin circuit too, but this is different. And I said, okay. And then after we finished the three weeks with Bobby Bland and I said, okay, I'm gonna try this. And, and Ernie said to me, you won't regret it. Those guys make a lot of money. But I mean, it wasn't just about the money. I was like, okay, is this, I mean, I just didn't know anything about, I didn't know anything about recording business. I had never made a record per se, you know what I mean? So they're talking about making our own album and doing this stuff, but they were working with Buddy Miles but they want to bounce. They wanted to bounce off of that and do their own thing. So I was like, uh, okay. So I think I can do this. And I, he sent me a ticket, and I flew to Boston. I got off the plane. A limo guy was standing out there with a sign for me to drive in the car. I went to this. They drive me from Logan Airport, Logan Airfield, out to this place in a place called Newton Center in the suburbs of Boston, which is like a really wealthy area. And we pull up to a place that looks, I thought it was a hotel, it was a house. And that's how big it was, it had 34 rooms. And it was an incredible house with everything. And this is the house that Buddy was leasing for his band and his headquarters of everything. and. They were, I did, I had no idea that they were, what they were doing was so, they were so lucrative and so busy and the whole, it was a whole different part of the music business that I didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it was so smooth and so easy to do everything. And they were doing, doing this and, and Buddy says, you want to come out with this? And we're going to go to. Netherlands and we can you can come up there and just sing a song with me or something you know do that and I was like oh, okay and you know it was like just like this crazy thing and you make really great money and it was incredible but then it got to be really really cold in Boston and they were in, the, in that time of the year like February January February nobody was touring because it was winter and bad weather and that so was kind of like a slow time so everybody says hey buddy let's take us somewhere get us a gig where it's warm so he talks to his manager a couple of days go by okay we're going to to um to Miami Florida and we go to Miami, Florida. Now, in the meantime, I've been writing songs and playing the piano. They had all these different keyboards and different rooms. This house had all these little white little nooks and cranny rooms with music stuff in it, the whole house. And um, I had a huge big room with my own bathroom, everything. It was great. And it was snowing and 15 inches of snow outside. And so we wanted to go to where it was warm. And we went to Miami, Florida. We played at the Marco Polo, at the Marco in the Marco Polo room. We got booked there. Well, so it was the beach. It was, I'm walking around, I'm down on the sand. I'm, it was like, this is great to get out of Boston and be there. 
And I'm now I had been on the road with Bobby Bland. So I had met a lot of people. I had met Sam and Dave, which you know who that is. Mm -hmm. And um, I, when I get to, I, I was walking and then in the back of the hotels on Miami Beach, everything starts to look alike after you walk for a while. Then it's like, oh, where did I, which hotel did I come out of? Where's my entrance? So I ended up having to walk all the way around and come back in. I had on a sarong and a bathing suit and some sandals. And I'm like, I'm so tired, the sun. And I walk into the lobby and I uh, said, ah, oh, I got lost. I had to walk all the way around. And then Dave Prater was in the lobby talking to another person. He sees me. He thinks I'm still with Bobby Bland. He goes, hey, where's Blue? Is he here? I go like, oh, I don't work with him anymore. I'm working with Buddy Miles. And he's, the guy with him goes, you're working with Buddy Miles? Because I want to get us. We're trying to get tickets to get in there to see Buddy Miles tonight. I said, well, maybe you can be my guest. Well, that guy was a man named Luther Dixon. And he was friends with Dave Prater. And while we're standing there talking about me get, making them guest at our show at Marco Polo Room, he says, Luther is looking for an artist to invest in. He says, you want to invest in a girl, if you want to invest in a female singer, this is the girl you should invest in. So I'm like, okay. So I invite them to the show. I said, they, I'm going to have guests and it's going to be Luther Dixon. Well, I didn't had no idea of Luther's history, that he was this incredible songwriter who had done all this stuff in New York and written songs that the Beatles had recorded and all this. How did I know? He lived in Boca Raton and had a yacht. I had no idea. None. I was just like, oh, he's Dave Prather's friend who's interested in investing in an artist. So I tell Andre and Marlo this. So you got to meet this guy. He wants to. So we all met. They came to the show. Uh, Luther bought his wife, Maxine, and Dave Prather was there with some other people. They had a huge big table with flowers. And all I did was put them on the guest list. I don't know. But they knew it was Luther Dixon. So they were like, oh, he's coming. I had no idea. It was so funny. And. So I said, okay, so this is these are the other guys that we we're trying to put a band together. He goes, okay, you have any songs? Because we can go in the studio while you're here and we can just put down some basic stuff. Or if you want to do an arrangement on something, do a cover tune, just so I can hear what you got. So we go in and we recorded um, uh, the, the, the Rolling Stones song that saw him today at the, you can't always get what you want. We recorded that song in Florida. And from that, the arrangement, remember, we never did it like it was original. That was my whole thing. We can't do anything the way we can hear it a different way. So we did my arrangement of that, my idea. And we recorded that and I played it. And Luther was just sitting there in the studio. And then after that, he says, okay, so where are you guys based? We are based in Boston. He says, so you can come to, where would you want to record if you could? And you could, where would you want to do this, this recording? And so the guy said, we want to do record plan in New York. Because I didn't know anything. Like a studio name? I, I'm, you could put a gun to my head. I couldn't tell you a studio name at that time. And they said, record plan. Record plan, New York. Uh, which was like a premiere recording studio at that you know still is and so he says okay so we can work on it when during the week because you on the weekend they were still touring with buddy but on the weekdays monday tuesday wednesday thursday we could go to new york and record so we went there stayed at the city squire hotel we had standing reservation there and we took the eastern airline shuttle which is not there anymore and we flew to new york every monday or Sunday night, if they came back from tour, then we would get on a Sunday night late red eye shuttle and go to New York and stay at the City Squire and then go to Record Plan and Record. And I was writing songs all the rest of the time, doing stuff and working on arrangements. And that's how the first Maxanne album came about. Wow. <laughs> you talk about like um, sort of meant to be again, so many things fall into place, but. There it mm. is.